0: Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to a special episode of The Audit. My name is Maryam Mirza, and I work as a Policy Associate at the Bad Lab Center for Regional and Global Connectivity. The Audit is a podcast about evaluating Pakistan's bilateral relations with its key partners around the world. The first season of The Audit specifically looks into Pakistan's relationship with the US, the many areas of convergence, confrontations, and, and complexities that inform this relationship. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting one of the main voices behind the the audit, Mr. Adam Weinstein, who is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute and a non-resident fellow at the BAD Lab. Thank you for being here, Adam, and for taking out the time to speak with us.
1: Thanks for having me, and you know I see this as a second home, so I'm always happy to be here.
0: Great, thanks, Adam, for being here. I would like to get straight into the conversation. I think that the partnership that Pakistan and and the US have had with each other during the years of the war on terror, specifically from 2002 to 2018, has been a very important aspect of this relationship. So much so that Pakistan has received security aid of numbers up to $33 billion. And I bring this up because the eventual end of those aid inflows has contributed to some of the economic difficulties that Pakistan is now facing today. Of course, it's not the only factor, but it is of a lot of importance, and I would like to focus a bit more on that first. Um, so Pakistan's current economic difficulties are taking manifest are taking shape in three different areas, or in the or in the form of three different issues. One would be its its reduced external financing. The second is its depletion of, 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 of foreign reserves. And the third is, is that it's now having to seek out loans from multilateral and bilateral sources. This economic challenge comes at a time when Pakistan is also dealing with the resurgence of the of the Taliban, the TTP. The TTP has carried out multitude of attacks on Pakistan security forces. What we thought was a problem constrained to the tribal belt has now started to affect more parts of the country. A very recent example and a very very frightening one at that has been the most recent attack inside of Karachi. Now, I want to speak to you a bit more on the appetite within Pakistan's own government on how it seeks to deal with this matter. And is it seeking any sort of counter-terrorism partnership with the US during this time? My first question to you is, how do you see the appetite forming on both sides? And realistically, is there any scope for such a collaboration to take place at all?
1: Well, thanks for that question. Let me start with uh, one point that I think is important. Pakistan only faces two existential threats. That's its its economic issues and climate change. There is no future in which the TTP is able to unseat the Pakistani state the way the Afghan Taliban did in Afghanistan. That's simply impossible. But the t- insecurity that the TTP and groups like it cause affects the economy, affects the growth of the country. It contributes to brain drain. Uh, it contributes to uh, a low foreign investment. It contributes to an international perception of the country as a, as a hotbed of terrorism. And so, The TTP threat is existential in the sense that it contributes to these bigger existential threats. Now, I think. um, The appetite in Washington for getting involved at the levels that it was, let's say, in the Zardari era, era, for example, you know, or the Musharraf era, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I do think the Pakistani state probably wants U.S. help because Let's face it: the TTP is incredibly scared of U.S. drones. The TTP is incredibly scared of the kind of uh, force multiplier that U.S. intelligence can provide. Uh, but I think the the level of 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 uh, or the let's say the uh, incentives for involvement uh, are different in Washington and in Islamabad. Washington views the ttp as a separate entity from iskp or from al-qaeda so look if al-qaeda was in the picture sure us will probably become more involved but if it's viewed as ttp and ttp is being very shrewd in its public statements by saying look we're only focused on the pakistani state and they've been quite shrewd in who they've targeted and that they've only mainly targeted police and security forces and i think that's that's, uh, that, that's driven by two factors. One, TTP wants to keep the United States out of this. And secondly, TTP doesn't want to completely alienate uh, the Pakistani public by targeting civilians, although civilians have, have died as a result of their attacks.
0: Interesting you say that, that Washington right now may have a much lower appetite to take a more confrontational stance against the TTP in Pakistan. Um, because in in the past, especially during the years of the war on terror, we've observed that Washington has had a much lower threshold for violence and instability inside of Pakistan in order for it to start to counter it. Now, this is not to say that Washington hasn't been acknowledging of the of the current violence that Pakistan is facing. Mister Mister Derek Shole very very. Recently, also made a statement acknowledging that the TTP is one of the major threats to Pakistan right now. And this statement comes at a time when both countries do seem to be engaging with each other a bit more than we've seen in the in in the past couple of months. Um, a few recent um, examples come to mind. Washington hosted a four-day U.S. Pak U.S. defense dialogue. Very but very much recently, uh, I think this was in mid-Feb, and there have also been exchanges between military officials from both sides. Uh, Pakistan's foreign minister Bhutto, has also been making recent and and frequent visits to uh, to to the U.S. Um, however, I would also not like to get too optimistic about engagements from both sides as an indication of a of a growing partnership, because. The events of last year, especially with the foreign Pakistani Prime Minister's statements on the on Washington's involvement in Pakistan's political apparatus, have been quite damaging to to, to the relationship, so so much so that there is this sense of distrust um, as well as tensions uh, that both faces that both sides have to consider um but i would also like to explore the possibility of any collaboration if it were to take place what do you think would be the threshold for violence and instability in pakistan for the us and what would that threshold mean for any kind of counter-terrorism collaboration to take place
1: well there were two reasons that the threshold was much lower when the us was in afghanistan reason number one is that the cost of uh helping was lower because we had troops and assets, and air assets based right across the border in Afghanistan. So it was simply logistically easier to help. Uh, We had a previous episode where we talked about flood relief and flood relief in 2010 was easier uh, because there were troops right across the border. So, you know, the US presence in Afghanistan had a huge impact on how willing the United States was to get involved Directly in Pakistan's affairs and security. Um, the second reason is that instability during that era directly affected US troops across the border. So it was believed that insecurity in Pakistan would lead quite literally to US deaths, whereas that's not quite the case now. So look, if TTP started targeting US citizens or perhaps uh, foreigners in general in Pakistan, if they started blowing up hotels, as they they used to, and and things like that, that might raise the threshold. If if it became very apparent that TTP was uh, working with Al-Qaeda on transnational Mm -hmm. ambitions or had their own transnational ambitions, that might change things. Mm -hmm. Or if TTP were to begin to engage in the kind of terrorism that's truly destabilizing, unfortunately, let's just talk about the elephant in the room a small percentage of Pakistanis have faced the brunt of this P- TTP terrorism then that's the police the security forces and the residents of the former Fatah and certain parts of uh, southern KP and 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 folks in Peshawar as well they faced the brunt of this violence whereas the rest of Pakistan has kind of been uh, separated from it. Mm. But if this were to spread into major uh, cities outside of KP, Mm. um, we saw the attack in Karachi. That was a relatively small attack in the grand scheme of things. But if we were to start seeing big attacks in Karachi and Lahore and Islamabad and Pindi, if it's now unsafe, um, consistently unsafe for diplomats to move around, Mm. I think that's the kind of situation where we might see the threshold where the US begins to get involved. How it gets involved, and, and look, we'll never know this. We might find out in 10 years that the U.S. is involved as we speak. Um, but in clandestine ways, through intelligence sharing, I think the threshold would have to be, the threshold of a violence or a transnational threat would have to be incredibly high before we saw a U.S. drone strike. That's for reasons uh, that have to do with domestic politics here, as well as uh, U- U.S. calculations and interests. And, and then the reality is the U.S. is pretty distracted in Ukraine and East Asia right now. And, and that's the reality of the world. And when you look at the scale of conflict in Ukraine and then you go to a U.S. official and say, well, TTP killed a couple of police officers in, in Karachi, I think the, that the, the reaction is going to be, OK, so that's a Pakistani problem. You need to solve it. Um, and let's be clear, I think that the U.S. can help Pakistan in terms of the direct firefight with TTP, the intelligence component, Mm. the the weapons component, the Mm. you know, the what I mean by that is the United States has the ability to help Pakistan kill TTP fighters, kill TTP leaders. But the United States does not have the ability to help uh, Pakistan deal with the governance and societal relations aspects that are underlying drivers of this conflict
0: okay interesting you say that because and this is this is all this is all part and parcel of all all of the considerations that Pakistan needs to be taking in trying to secure its own security but also trying to maintain relations with the IEA in Afghanistan as recent reports have shown TTP militants are operating out of Afghanistan and the IEA has been lending some operational as well as logistical support to to its members. Um, This makes me think about all of the considerations that Pakistan needs to be taking in possibly collaborating with the US on trying to kill kill the TTP threat, but also trying to balance its relations with the IEA and acknowledging their presence and trying to maintain regional stability.
1: Well, look, the IAEA also needs to manage its relations with Pakistan, and I think the IAEA has gotten a little bit, a little bit uh, too big for its its own shoes. Uh, and so, you know, both Pakistan and the United States, uh, I think, have a shared interest when it comes uh, to trying to get uh, the Afghan Taliban to realize the predicament and, and realize that they have to make some compromises if they want to be accepted as as uh, <laughs> the the legitimate leader of Afghanistan. Uh, I I wanna make a point here, which is that I think the um, myth that the Afghan Taliban were a proxy of Pakistan in the true sense of the word has been disproven. Hmm. Uh, It's pretty obvious that the Afghan Taliban are not a proxy of Pakistan. Hmm. There were times when the Pakistani state and the Afghan Taliban and the Haqqani network worked in tandem with one another due to some short term interests. That's not Mm. the definition of a proxy Mm. that's different from a proxy. And I think it's a uh, a wake up call actually for the Pakistani state and for the West that, look, Pakistan can't control the Afghan Taliban. Mm. They've demonstrated that they're uncontrollable. Um, And so we have a pretty big task ahead of us.
0: Absolutely. And I think Pakistan also needs to be able to manage a lot of the, its own internal issues and of course b- rising terror is definitely one of those but as you said that it is quite isolated to uh, attacking security forces and there there is there is this entire spectrum of issues that the pakistani government is, ha- is is having to deal with one of which is is of course economic difficulty and the and especially at the risk of defaulting very, very soon. And then, of course, the entire issue of political instability, ahead of its, um, uh, basically ahead of general elections that are set to take place this year. So the, all of this also makes me think about how important it is to consider the priorities and the willingness of Pakistan's current, as well as future governments, in trying to tackle terrorism, especially posed by the TTP, do you what what in your opinion is the current stance of Pakistan's government on this front and is there any room for developing a national level narrative which suits Pakistan's own counter terror approaches and does and does Washington have a role in such a narrative if it were to take place
1: you know, I don't know that Washington really has a role in such a narrative. And in fact, if Washington had too much of a role in the narrative, it might be detrimental to the narrative. This has to be seen. Look, Washington can help, but this has to be a Pakistan led effort. I think uh, I don't really know what the Pakistani position is on TTP right now, and I'm not sure if the Pakistani state knows what, what its position is on mm-hmm. TTP. I think it's a fluid situation and they're figuring it out. Obviously, the negotiations at best kick the can down the road. Um, I think it's clear that those negotiations might have facilitated fighters coming back into to Pakistan. Um, clearly the Afghan Taliban haven't been cooperative on that. And, uh, and, and so we have this situation where TTP is is free to act and has freedom of movement. And they've demonstrated that, look, they have sleeper cells. Even when they don't have sleeper cells, they can move across the country and move to different cities. And it's, it's quite disturbing. I don't think negotiations are going to work with the TTP. They've never worked with the TTP. Negotiations between the United States and the Afghan Taliban worked because we were negotiating to leave. Mm-hmm. But Pakistan can't leave, can it? So that's a very different type of negotiation. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that the United States got to extricate itself from this mess and move on to other things. And now Pakistan and Afghanistan are stuck in it. I, I, I do understand that. And it's an unfortunate reality. But that's simply the reality. We could talk about it all day long in circles. It won't change what the present day situation is, which is that TTP is a real threat. And I think the Pakistani state ca- can, can best deal with TTP with a dual strategy. They do have to, to fight them, uh, but they also just need to demonstrate that, uh, look, the TTP, are, they're not a viable threat in any real way. They can disrupt things uh, they're terrorists. They should be treated as miscreants. They shouldn't be taken seriously. What the TTP tries to do is make the Pakistani state look silly. That's their their tactics. Really, are that simple. They focus on the police because the police, I you know, are are not the most sympathetic victim. I I'm, I'm not saying that people like to see police get killed, but I'm saying that compared to civilians or compared to other you know groups of people, definitely compared to children. Um, if you wanted to pick a victim that you know the broader society is not going to care that much about mm-hmm. due to reputational issues and things like that the police would be it and it has the added benefit of every time they successfully attack the police and make the police look incompetent which they've managed to do um, and I mean that with utmost respect to the sacrifice of these pol- police but but they have revealed some incompetence in the police force the problem with that is the message it sends the Pakistani society is, look, the police can't even protect themselves. You think they can protect you? And that has a way of completely demoralizing society. And it gets back to what I'm saying before. It drives brain drain. It drives a sense of insecurity. It affects the amount of business risk that Pakistanis and foreigners are, are willing to take. Um, you know, you think, let's say, hypothetically, there was a business delegation that was had planned to come to Islamabad, and now there's a you know, a security alert on the Marriott. Mm-hmm. What message does that send? Uh, what message does that send? Rather, so this is the problem. And so the TTP, like any insurgency or terrorist group, is able to uh, create a lot of damage uh, with just a little bit of resources. Mm-hmm. It, the terrorist attack in Karachi wasn't that complex. They walked into a building, mm-hmm. they they killed a couple police officers, and then they were killed and they hit on the roof. I mean, this is the the attack in Peshawar. Uh, if anything, they, they got lucky due to the structure of the mosque and the, uh, the, the, the ceiling falling down. I think they didn't even imagine that they were ever going to kill that many people. A great number of those casualties came from the roof collapsing. Uh, they're not masterminds of logistics and terror, and they don't have to be. All they have to do is insert the feeling of helplessness in Pakistani society. That is the definition of terrorism, terrorize mm-hmm. the population psychologically, mm-hmm. and they can do incredible damage to the Pakistani state. The best thing the Pakistani state can do is say, no, we have a better answer. We're going to get ourselves out of this economic crisis. We're going to listen to some of the complaints of the people in the former FATA. We're going to make sure that there's rule of law and that we don't give in to these terrorist demands, and yes, at some point, we're going to kill these terrorists. Hmm.
0: No, absolutely. I think what you said about the TTP not, having, not operating at as large a scale as Pakistan has witnessed before in terms of terror, but just the fact that targeting security forces has the incentive to demoralize the government as well as the people. And I think that's where a lot of the source of fear comes from. I would also really like to reflect on the um, points you presented on the negotiations itself. I think the TTP's demands were, un- were non-negotiable from-, from the start. I think some-, some would argue that we've been in a cycle of negotiations after negotiations in this region with different outfits operating out- outside of Afghanistan, but there has never been a positive end in sight. And um, one of the things that instantly comes to mind when you speak about the political will inside the Pakistan government is quite low. Because I think after the Peshawar attack, it was the the prime minister that tried to call an an all-parties conference to discuss a counter-terrorism approach. But no such meeting has taken place so far. So I think what you're saying about the government trying to prioritize its economic revival. And as a result, some political instability in the country prior to the elections does seem to be holding a lot more um, stealth as opposed to uh, trying to at least garner up the will to counter the the TTP. that's That's on Pakistan. I want to focus a little bit on Afghanistan as well because we can't ignore that in this equation. we We can't ignore uh, uh, what's what's happening in Afghanistan and the variety of terror outfits that are operating outside of it apart from the TTP um, that that do threat regional stability, which is of concern to both to Pakistan, Afghanistan, and one can debate whether it's of importance to 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 the US or not. Um, And I think it's still not as unsafe to say that the U.S. still does have some or there is this indication based on past engagements that there is this appetite or at least the willingness to try to seek stability in this region specifically in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And perhaps that could be, you know, trying to save face in a in a situation where general elections are are also supposed to come up inside of the US this year. And with this growing un with this growing unpopularity about the withdrawal and the and the and the conduct in which it was done. Um, One thing I want to actually one thing you did bring up is about the US Getting involved to the point of perhaps sharing intelligence and being a part of co- being a part of coordination efforts to fight the t- to fight the TTP threat. My question to you is, and this this might be a very optimistic one, but is it too ambitious to think of a three-way counterterrorism uh, partnership or collaboration from the U.S., Afghanistan, and Pakistan in this context,
1: in which the Afghan Taliban are working? Yes. Uh, no, I don't see that happening. I mean, I think I think, my understanding is that the US probably would have been willing to, deal, to help the Afghan Taliban deal with ISKP to an extent. I mean, that's conjecture on my part. And I don't think the Afghan Taliban really want to deal with ISKP. There was an interview with Tom West in which he pretty much said as much that the Afghan Taliban have been very clear that they don't want help when it comes to ISKP. In terms of TTP, I don't. I mean, I don't think the Afghan Taliban have any motivation to to curtail them. If anything, they're they're helping them logistically. Uh, so that's that's a real problem. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't bet on Afghanistan being a major feature of the general elections. I think the average American doesn't think about Afghanistan at all. It's true that at the time of the withdrawal, uh, Biden took some popularity hits. And of course, when the general election comes, his his challengers are going to attack him for that. But it will be just one of many attacks they make. They're not going to it's not going to be the main uh, feature of the attack campaign against Biden. Uh, I think Americans just don't think about Afghanistan. And that's why when if I recall correctly, I don't even think he mentioned Afghanistan once in the State of the Union. Uh, So you can really Mm -hmm. gauge a lot of things by listening to the State of the Union, because that's that's what Biden and his team think matters to the US people, whatever they include in that address. Um, and Af- Afghanistan wasn't included. Uh, intelligence sharing, look, I think there's limits to US intelligence probably because the US is out of, out of Afghanistan and out of the region. I do think that there's probably certain uh, tools and so forth that, that could be for used for Pakistan's benefit and things like that. At the end of the day, The U.S. wants to see a stable Pakistan and a stable Afghanistan. Um, And uh, even I I think for the United States, a stable Afghanistan that is Taliban led is probably better than an unstable Mm -hmm. Afghanistan that's not Taliban led or a raging civil war or or just a terror state. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things can always become worse. And I think there's a lot of hyperbole in Washington about how bad things are in Afghanistan, but I think And I'm not saying they're not bad, but they could be a lot worse, a lot, lot worse. And I think there's a recognition, at least within the US government, that hey, it's not nearly as bad as what it could be.
0: Okay, interesting. (laughs) Um, I think this does really put Pakistan in a slightly complicated position yet again, because it does have to, try to balance its relationship with the IEA, of course, in trying to maintain regional stability. And sometimes it's fallen short on those effort, like on those efforts. But there is this acknowledgement, wider acknowledgement, a high level acknowledgement that Pakistan at least diplomatically needs to be engaging with the IEA and trying to ensure that the international community does so as well, because there seems to be no other way. And as you said, perhaps it's more practical um, at least in the, in, in the short to medium term, for a stable Afghanistan under an IEA government, as opposed to one uh, which is without one at all, and that could be uh, a state which is a lot more at risk of terror and civil war and instability. Um, one thing I really would like to get into is the balancing act for Pakistan. It, it, on, on, on the one hand, it does need to engage with the IEA, but it also needs to acknowledge the security risks that come with the post-August 15 world and regional reality. How can Pakistan try to work together with the US or perhaps even on its own to try to address both the security as well as humanitarian challenges that are in Afghanistan right now, and whilst trying to ensure that the IEA does stick to its commitments as outlined in in like you know in the doha agreement and i bring up the humanitarian question because day by day and and month by month and there's there is always a lot of international noise around the worsening situation for people inside of afghanistan and so how can pakistan try to balance its act
1: well i think first of all pakistan has to take care of its own people Uh, it can I, i think it's it's taken on a lot of afghan Refugees, and frankly, I think Europe and the United States need to do more in that regard. Uh, I think there's been an unfair burden on regional countries like Iran, Turkey, uh, and Pakistan when it comes to the flow of Afghan refugees. Uh, I definitely think shaking your finger or shaking your fist at the Taliban—it doesn't work with them. Period. It's a waste of time. There's very little leverage. They don't listen. if anything, shaking your fist and chastising them seems to make them even more intransigent. It, I, I know this is simplistic, but it's almost as if if you tell them they have to do something, you're almost guaranteeing they won't do that. Um, and we—it's it, unfortunate because we're living in a world in which there's, uh, you know, of course, well, this is a good thing. There's freedom of expression and. I think NGOs and governments feel the need to criticize the Afghan Taliban on these issues quite publicly because they're answerable to their constituents and so forth uh, and to their just their population. Maybe constituent is the wrong word, Mm. but um, it would be better if we could do all of this behind closed doors. That would be a better way of dealing with the Taliban. Unfortunately, it's hard to do that. I think more of that needs to be done. We have to remember, though, these changes are going to be measured in years and decades. If we had more dialogue, for example, if the United States had more dialogue uh, with Taliban leaders outside of Doha and in Kabul, mm. uh, like Mutaki, like Sirajuddin Haqqani, I don't necessarily think these are the decision makers. Mm. I think it's the religious council around the Emir, but these are still players. Mm. And I mean, the emir's not that old. Maybe he'll be around another 15 years. Maybe he'll die of a heart attack in two months. We don't know. But we should create. The diplomacy that allows our allows this region in the United States to capitalize on whatever developments there could be. Um, so it, you take a you take a hypothetical situation where there is a transition of power between two emirs. Maybe if there was diplomacy, it could be uh, a, a, the the new emir and the new orientation of the IEA could be one that's more positive. We don't know, and it's unknowable. Hmm. Um, What we do know is what doesn't work. Uh, The sanctions haven't worked, Uh, sort of strongly worded public statements. Now, I don't think we should just look the other way and the Taliban are doing horrible things to to women and journalists and dissidents and ethnic minorities and we just say, oh no, that's okay. Let's sit down and have have chide with Mm -hmm. you. But I do think that we need to recognize the limits of of criticizing the Taliban and the potential long-term benefits of sitting down with them. And I'll use an example for you. The US Taliban agreement, whatever you think of it, the agreement that was signed in Doha, mm. it achieved its aims because its aim was to extricate the United States out of Afghanistan. It was a withdrawal agreement. Let's just call it what it is. It wasn't a peace agreement. That was, that was um, flowery language that was, it was dressed up as a peace agreement. It was a withdrawal agreement. Don't shoot us on the way out mm. and we'll leave. And if you can sit down with the Afghan government and you can please stop, you know, hosting Al-Qaeda, that would be really nice. But the main thing we want is we want to leave and we can't have a single U.S. casualty on the way out because, you know, I as President Trump or I as President Biden can't deal with that politically. Um, That's what that agreement was. Who negotiated that agreement? Khalilzad and Baradar. That agreement is a fruit or a product of the personal relationship Mm. between Zalmay Khalilzad and Malabaradar. That is what it was. It's not a result of traditional Western diplomacy. It's not a bunch of technocrats who were sitting in the room. It's not a contract that lawyers drew up. The only reason the Doha agreement was achieved was because of the long-standing personal relationship that developed between Baradar and Khalilzad. And so that is the only way you really can work with the Taliban. You, you, mm. you, you have to develop personal relationships with them over years mm. and then you can you might be able to get a little bit of what you want.
0: Mm. OK, uh, Adam, we've spoken quite extensively on the defense and counterterrorism and, and security aspects of this relationship. And it's been a very enjoyable and very rich conversation. Um, I I now now want to focus a bit more on the economic side of this relationship and this is something we've tried to touch upon in many episodes of the audit previously. Um, Right now, for Pakistan and the US, I see three possible areas of economic economic partnership. Um, And feel free to add more. Uh, I think one area from the get-go is Pakistan's energy sector. Pakistan, much like the rest of the world, is suffering from an energy crisis. And perhaps the US can lend or provide some of its expertise, uh, technologies, uh, as as well as more investment opportunities. Another area of possible uh, possible collaboration could be climate change um, in trying to facilitate Pakistan's development as well as implementation of its adaptation and mitigation strategies i think the 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 entire world pretty much knows now how at risk pakistan is to climate linked disasters not just floods but also heat waves as 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 well as droughts and a third and a very important aspect right now for pakistan economically is the gsp program the gsp program is set to end in 2025 pakistan is trying to push for an extension but I believe that now would be a good time for the, for, for the US as well as Pakistan to explore strengthening its bilateral trade and investment relationship, perhaps through the form of free trade agreements or, in, or investment treaties. My last question to you would be, what are the specific te- steps you think Pakistan can take in trying to strengthen this partnership on the economic side in these three areas as well as elsewhere?
1: Well, look, I'm, it wouldn't be irrational if every single panel we ever had was about climate change and economics. Because like I said at the beginning, those are the two existential threats to Pakistan, not TTP. Uh, what can We've seen how mm-hmm. climate change can literally reshape the image of Pakistan from a satellite view. Yeah. Uh, and, and the economy and the economic situation is not only dire now, but if you look at the projected growth rates of Pakistan's population, it is a ticking time bomb. Uh, Pakistan can no longer afford just to stay afloat. It needs to grow, uh, or else it's not going to be able to support its, its population. Uh, I Look, a free trade agreement, I think, is always good. But it's not going to achieve anything if there's not Pakistani enterprise and US-Pakistan trade um, available to take advantage of the free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sense, the free trade agreement is putting the cart before the horse a little bit because even though I support it, and I, I definitely think there should be a GSP extension, but Pakistan simply needs to produce more. I mean, Pakistan's economic problems uh, are quite simple. And I know that uh, on the this has been talked about at length on the Pakistanami podcast and other for that that uh, Tabad Lab is involved in, it needs to earn, produce more and it needs to earn more dollars. Period. There's no way around that. No free trade agreement is gonna is gonna magically mm-hmm. fix that. Uh, we can have uh, 50 diplomatic statements about the importance of Pakistan, the importance of trade, but at some point, folks have to roll up their sleeves and kind of just do the work. Pakistan could take advantage of IT exports. We talk about this all the time. Mm. There's conditions that are happening in the, in the world right now, developments in the world that are to Pakistan's favor. Uh, the, the fact that COVID-19 further normalized remote work. The fact that there's now sanctions on Russia, which removed, uh, which made Russia's IT exports uh, impossible. There's There were plenty of programmers and engineers and IT folks who were working in Russia for, European or U.S. companies who can no longer do that because of the sanctions as a result of the war in Ukraine. Mm. Pakistan, I, I think in our uh, uh, audit episode where we talked about economic potential and partnerships, mm. uh, we had a guest who said Pakistan produces twenty-five thousand um, IT graduates a year. I fact-checked that; that's true. Mm. And according to him, and I'm gonna I'm gonna trust him. He said it was uh, there were five thousand quality graduates. Mm. That's still wow. a lot. I mean, that's a better model than the Gulf uh, remittance model. Mm. You don't need to have people in the Gulf sending back remittances. Mm. You can have people in Pakistan earning money in Pakistan and immediately spending it in Pakistan mm. It's a good deal for the foreign companies. They don't have to worry about healthcare. They don't have to worry about taxes so much. It's a good deal for the Pakistani engineers. They're going to be making a lot of money mm. Um, and have an incredible quality of life. So that's that's one area. there's, um, there's the further development as possible in the textile industry. Uh, there's, there's other industries where uh, in the tech sector, not just ITX exports, but in the startup sector, there's there's opportunities. So uh, again, Pakistan has a lot of opportunities. Uh, it just needs to uh, it just needs to get it done. And if anything, in some ways, the Pakistani government needs to get out of the way, create, you know, a a ease of doing business and a tax scheme that's good for investment um, and get out of the way Mm. and and just let the entrepreneurs handle things. This is gonna be something that's driven by the private sector.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's a great note to end on is to think about Pakistan's place in the world as beyond just a security risk or a victim of terror and that's also what we've been trying to do in all of our episodes of of the audit is trying to see through opportunities and areas of possible collaboration but not just between the two countries but for pakistan internationally in how it can try to take advantage of its demographic of its geography of the some of the programs and some of the key partnerships that it's that it already finds itself inside. Um, and I and although the bulk of, of of our discussion has been on the on the security angle, and that's and the importance of that is irrefutable given the this rise in tension and panic, as well as this kind of reminder of the fatigue we would feel during the period. Uh, between 2007 to 2014 in the average civilian having to come face to face with terror. And although right now we can be hopeful that that the TTP is not operating at the scale uh, that Pakistan has seen before, uh, but there's no denying that this conversation is extremely important and I hope that there is perhaps more momentum on trying to resolve this, but as well as not, not, not forgetting our other existential issues, such as climate change, uh, trying to meet our uh, climate adaptation as well as mitigation goals, and trying to you know, get more stable on our political front, especially given, given the coming of you know, elections this year. So it's been, it's been a very fruitful discussion, and thank you for taking out the time. And it has been very, very enjoyable for me to be speaking to you. And for our listeners, stay tuned for more episodes of The Audit in the coming weeks, as we continue to explore more facets and aspects of this very important and interesting relationship. Thank you, khudaafiz, and goodbye.